This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored. My chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the outdoors today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both indoors and out. Jan Christensen has fished all over the world. He grew up in Denmark, but moved to Australia after earning his PhD in biotechnology. Ten years ago, he and his friend Daniel Gauze set out to film one of the most unique projects ever undertaken in fly fishing. They set up a camp in Nicaragua and fished for large tarpon out of belly boats. They called the film to Palm and it took the fly fishing industry by storm. In this episode of Anchored, Jan and I talk about to Palm, the advantages and disadvantages of fishing out of belly boats, and Jan's work as a scientist working with enzymes for fossil fuels. Have you ever done a podcast before? I have never done a podcast before, no. This is your first one? Yes. Are you scared? Uh, Not scared. Uh, (laughs) Anxious. (laughs) Just kidding. No, thank you for coming on the show. I can't believe that that you're here in Australia. Because I've been just dying to get like a Dane or someone from Sweden or just someone from like Scandinavia onto Mm. the show. And you're right here in my backyard. I am. How long have you been here for? I've been in Australia for a year and a half. So it still feels relatively new. Well, let's start from the beginning and explain who you are and why we're sitting down. Would you consider yourself in the fishing industry? Um, Not anymore, I would say. Uh, I used to be a little involved. When I was a student, I worked in a fly shop, was really into photography, started a small business on the side where I did photography, wrote articles for a number of magazines, and then I produced a fishing movie a few years ago. Mm -hmm. And then I kind of took a break from the industry for 
a number of reasons after that. Now, it's a fishing movie where people will have recognized your work. So go ahead and tell me what the movie is called. Yeah, so I, I did a fishing movie with my good friend Daniel Goods. Um, about, it was called Tapam, a fly fishing movie. And it was about a, a couple of crazy guys in float tubes catching big tarpon in Central America. It was amazing. Thank you. I remember yeah. when it came out because, you know, it gets stale. Fishing movies get really stale. I actually can't watch them anymore because I associate them as work because I mm. just can't watch and enjoy them without either nitpicking them or thinking about something that I'd like to do. But that really, like, it stopped me in my tracks and I really enjoyed it because you, you've you got these guys, like you said, in float tubes fishing for this these enormous fish. Yeah. So when I looked more into it, I really hadn't seen anything then before of that nature. Talk to me from, about the fishery and we'll work our way through the story. Yeah, sure. Uh, so uh, just to start out with, I, I really don't want to take credit for coming up with the idea or the place. That was very much Daniel's effort. Uh, he spent a lot of time finding this place. Uh, he traveled throughout Central America for a long time, basically with his backpack and a hammock and, and photos of Tarpon and, and Snook to show the locals what he was after. Oh, is it so because he couldn't speak the language? Well, he, he speaks Spanish, but he would travel out with the, like the local tribes where not all of them spoke Spanish. Uh, so, yeah. So he and showed a picture and he's like, have you seen yes, this animal? Basically. I love yeah, it. Yeah. And he did that for a long time and, and found this place. And then I met up with Daniel. This was before you had Facebook and stuff. And I was on a couple of, this was when forums were really big. For, uh, yeah, yeah. That's, and I remember so all Daniel and I connected there and found out we both had a passion for traveling to pretty far-flung place to go fly fishing and photography. Uh, we met up a couple of times and Daniel had already been down there. He had photos published. And of course, I was really, really eager to go there because it looked amazing. And Daniel was talking about doing a movie. What country was this in? This was in Nicaragua. Did, and you guys said that in the video? No. Oh. We kept it very quiet. No, actually, we kept it a, a secret. We didn't tell anyone why this was filmed. And not everyone liked that. <laughs> yeah, well, no, I, well, good for you guys. Yeah. Because I was going to ask you how he felt about, or if you knew how he felt about spending all this time and seeing how hard it was to find such a place and uh, then suddenly have the pressure to expose yes, it. it. It was a very conscious thing and it was something that we discussed before doing it because we knew, okay, if we bring it, this out and it does become popular, of course, a lot of people are going to be asking, where is this? And we had decided we're not going to tell people, but of course, we knew it's very likely someone is going to recognize it and go there, which also, but I, I think we pretty much kept it secret for like a year and a half after the movie came out. Right. Yeah. So what is Tapam? So Tapam is the local word for tarpon in the mesquite language. Okay, um, so, okay. Yeah. And Daniel had learned to speak a little bit of the local language, which is always a really good way to get on with the locals. Uh, and so we adopted the, the title of the name from there. It was catchy. Yeah. So is there a lodge called Tapam? And if there was, did it exist before you guys did the video? No, it didn't exist before. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yes. So someone, and without getting into details, because for unfortunately we're not involved with the lodge today, uh, but somebody recognized and said, hey, we want to build the lodge here. And they adopted the name from the same name. Ooh, the controversy. <laughs> yeah. How do you guys feel about that, knowing that you're the ones who put it out there? Um, yeah, it, it, it's a little difficult because, of course, we knew it was quite likely that was something like this was going to happen, and, and we wanted to work with them in particular. So we had two local guys that helped us during the movie, took us around, looked after our camp and so on, and 
Daniel has used them as guide for many years and we wanted them to be involved with the lodge because we knew they wouldn't be able to find any better guides down there. But for a number of reasons, that didn't pan out. So we don't really have anything to do with the lodge today, which is too bad, but that's just that's just how it is. Are those two guys still guiding? I don't know. I'm not even sure. Interesting. Uh, they do like eco tours and stuff. So yeah, so they're still around. Okay, well talk to me about the fishery because I mean, we don't need to dive into the exact GPS coordinates, but I'm no. absolutely fascinated at the thought of catching tarpon out of, I mean, were they float tubes or pontoons? Uh, sort of, there are float tubes, but they're sort of built like a pontoon. So they're, you sit above the water. And, and, and actually, it's, it's, it's one thing I like to debunk. I think a lot of people thought that we were doing the float tubing thing as a gimmick. Just sort of, hey, hey that's cool or something like that. But That's what I thought. Yeah, well, it turns well, and, out. And it was a cheap alternative and, and a way to do it yourself, that, which that, is exciting to me. That too, that too. But I don't know, have you ever fished out a float tube? Yeah, it's horrible, yeah. and I can't go to the bathroom. <laughs> That's true. That's <laughs> and true. I can't get a great cast because I'm so low. But but tell me, dude, but, sell so, me, sell me on float yeah. tube. So one of the great things about them is that you can get really, really close to the fish. You would have tarpon come up and gold bear two feet away from you. I mean, they they I, I reckon they would see you as just a, a tree floating down the river, something like that. Oh, but your legs are in the water. Yeah, but they don't seem to mind. Are there sharks yeah. there? Um, no. Okay. Otherwise, we wouldn't have done it. Yeah. Uh, it, it's a question we've gotten a lot. Of, of course, we you can't rule out that a bull shark is going to swim 20 kilometers up the river. But Daniel has been fishing this place for probably close to 10 years before we did the movie. He's caught hundreds of tarpon. He's never, ever once had a tarpon attacked. And he used to fish out of a, a, a panga. So okay. the, the odds are very, very small. You know, in this country, the odds are not that small. I know. Okay. Oh, and I probably wouldn't do it here. <laughs> Careful. Yeah. Even the most like the most unsuspecting rivers that have bass in them have big bull sharks in yes. them. It's yeah. so crazy to yeah. me. Okay. So, yeah. So one thing is you can get really close to the fish. Uh, we also fish some small creeks where you would barely be able to fit in the panga. But it's, it's, it's um, yeah, you get very close to your surroundings. It's a, it's a great feel as well. And then the other thing, so we were lucky to come across some, some pretty big tarpon, uh, which can take a while to, to get in. How uh, big is a big tarpon it, uh, there? I've never weighed a tarpon, so you should always be a bit cautious. But so we measured the length of a couple of the bigger ones. And I remember one of them was 198 centimeters to the fork of its tail. So according to the chart, that would be on the good side of 200 pounds. Uh, okay, so we're not talking baby tarpon no, here. not at all, not at all. These no. are full size. Yes, yeah. But, oh my gosh, I have so many questions. Okay, so let, let's talk to, a lot of people are, are getting into fishing or they're new to fishing, tuning into the show. Yeah. So maybe they don't understand fishing for tarpon. Now we're not flats fishing here. You're fishing in, in rivers, so it's more of like fishing in like canals, you're fishing deeper water? Yeah, it's, it's actually a combination. It's both a river, there's a canal, there are creeks. There's also a couple of lagoons that we would fish in. But yes, normally you would fish for either rolling fish or or fish that are feeding, but you don't, because the water tends to be colored, you don't actually see the fish that you're casting, at least not most of the time. Okay, so you, um, you get your your boat, your float tube. It's just yeah. so weird saying that <laughs> and saltwater fishing. So you get your float tube and you walk down. I'm assuming you go through the mangroves or you get to a launching spot. Yeah. You so get in the water. During uh, when we did the movie, we camped on the river and mm-hmm. we were there for three and a half weeks. So we would basically have tarpon right in front of our camp. So sometimes we didn't need to go very far. We could fish from the camp, it basically. Just slid yeah. into the water. Yeah. Okay, and then you see the fish. Now, are you blind casting the whole time? Uh, it really depends on what how the fish were reacting on that particular day. There were, uh, so again, Daniel had been there for many, he'd been there 
quite a few times and, and there are different strategies depending on which area you're fishing and, and how the fish were reacting. So one of the more exciting is when the fish are keyed in on big mullet and they attack these mullet and you have mullet jumping six feet in the air and you act, believe it or not, you have tarpon that grab the mullet in the air. Oh. It's a super spectacular sight. And on those days, you want to get out there, you want to throw the biggest popper you can, you can cast basically and they will come up and absolutely... Smash. Yeah. Yes. So you cast it, you strip it in, fish yes. takes your fly. All right. Yes. So I, I understand all that. But then obviously what we're all wondering is what happens after you're hooked yeah. up? Because I'm just envisioning it taking you for a crazy yeah. ride. And, 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 and it does sometimes. But this is the other uh, big advantage of being in a float tube. I reckon that we could land fish in half the time from a float tube compared to if we were in a skiff. How? Um, there's a couple of things. First of all, you tend to fight the fish with your legs rather than your arms. But you're in the water. You're in the water, but instead of having to pull with your arms all the time, you kick your feet and your legs are oh, lot... Oh, of course, you're kicking you're, you're, in the opposite Your direction. legs are a lot stronger than your arms. That, oh. that's a, but I think what is probably even more important is that there's a lot of technique in top and fishing, and I'm, I'm not saying I'm an expert at all, but what I learned, particularly from, from Daniel, is that... If you pull in the right direction and you can pull the tarpon off its balance, it tires out a lot faster. Now, if you're in a skiff, you can, you can change your right angle, you can pull it low or pull it high, but if that fish is 10 or 15 or 20 meters away, the angle doesn't really change that much. In a float tube, you just kick and you move behind the fish and you do that the whole time. So you're repositioning? All the time, absolutely. How so many times did a fish almost land on you? Uh, Daniel was hit on the arm once. It didn't happen to me. So uh, we did have a couple of small mishaps, or at least I, I, I did. One of them was uh, puncturing my float tube on a catfish. Not, not recommended. But <laughs> wait, wait, wait. What do you mean? Like you caught it and when so you brought there, it in? There's a lot of catfish in the river. They're really good eating, by the way. Uh, I had only ever caught catfish in uh, in Queensland a long time ago, and those catfish up there have these spines that are mildly venomous. Yeah, they've got like a bit of a poison yeah, gland. That, yeah. Yeah. So for some reason, I, I just assumed there was the same thing here and we'd be catching a lot of catfish. And so one of the first days we were there, I caught a catfish and so I, I had to unhook it. And so I sort of leaned it against my float tubes, which you shouldn't do because it went <laughs> What? It was that strong? Yeah, How big yeah. of a catfish was it? I don't know. Not very big, a couple of pounds. Where, like where yeah. was the spike? They have one on each fin on the side of their bodies and then one on the pectoral fin. That is hilarious, uh, yeah. but you were able to get back in? Yeah, yeah. And, well, and we had to go that. back to camp and repair it and it took half a day and uh, yeah, it wasn't very convenient, but yeah. All right, yeah, so tell yeah. me your mishap. Yeah, I had I had another one. So what if, again, we talk about the flow tubes, how you get close to the, to the fish. Um, sometimes they also take the fly right next to you or right in front of you. Yeah. And so I'd stripped in my whole sinking line, laid it in my lap, and of course I hook a large tarpon right at my fins and it takes off and all my loose line which is in my lap right goes into a giant nut and so I'm, I'm stripping with my rod under my right arm yeah and so I lift my arm to take the rod down but by then the big nut has already hit the first stripping guide and the rod goes flying and I just catch it by my fingertips in the air <laughs> and the next thing I hear is and all my snake guides in the rod of are gone. Of course it is, yeah. <laughs> that does happen. And Classic. they must have done a really, really good job on gluing the tip top because the big nut gets stuck in the tip top of the rod. 
and the Leviathan, the Rio Leviathan line with the 60 pound cord breaks in the tip top. But yeah, <laughs> most of the fight, even with the big tarpaulin, would happen very, very close. Like you'd only have the lead out, and at the last five or ten to fifteen minutes, you'd actually be grabbing the leader. Would fish very strong leaders to get the fish in very fast. Uh, the water doesn't always have a lot of oxygen in it, so it's, it's really important that you get the big fish in fast and, and release them again. Yeah, did you get a lot of uh, criticism from people saying, "Oh, it would just take way too long to land; it's just going to tow you around"? Yeah, some people did say that. But again, we were able to get the fish in extremely fast. And sometimes you hear of people fighting big tarpon for hours. And uh, even even a really big fish, we could usually get in 35, 40 minutes, sometimes up to an hour, but certainly not more than an hour, sometimes even half an hour. And, and these are really big tarpon. What was your landing rate? Because a lot of guys in skiffs, you know, they're just happy to have jumped a fish. They tend to bust them off or the fish jumps and lands on yeah. the leader. And and. <sighs> Again, I'm not going to say that we're, I don't think that we were in that sense. Well, let, let me rephrase it. So I think this is where the, the heavy leader and the flow tube comes into the picture again, because usually we would have a much better hookup rate than we would have if we were fishing out of the skiff in Florida, for example. You have a very strong leader, you hang onto your line and it will sort of pull the flow tube. And so you basically hang on to the line until you think it's going to break, and then you let go, and then you will have hooked the fish. Um, so again, I, I don't know the, the exact numbers, but yeah, certainly hooking a lot more fish than if we're out of the skiff on a flat somewhere. Did you ever get in a situation, like with a 200-pounder, which is arguably about the same weight as you, mm. where y you, you couldn't steer it? I mean, it owned you? Did that happen? I, sometimes we would end up like a kilometer or two from where we actually hooked the fish. Uh, because you're, you're fishing in the river and unless you actually kick your feet all the time, you're not going to stay in the same situation. So often you'd hook a big top on and you would end up in a completely different area. Could it take but, you to the open ocean? I didn't, it never, never, never went that far. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> My brain's running yeah. wild. It's yeah. like, then it pulled me out of the river, into the open ocean, into the currents, and then I was lost at sea. Nothing yeah. like Th this that. Is, this is quite far upstream, actually. Okay. Uh, so, yeah. Why do they go up that far? I would assume it's because there's a lot of uh, a lot of food, food? In, in, in the yeah. river. Uh, so it's really tidal influenced. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. And there are some very productive uh, lagoons as well that have a lot of big shrimp in them. So yeah. Do they uh, get worm hatches in Nicaragua? Not that I know of. Not that I know of. Uh, okay. Again, so sometimes they'd be hooked on to the shrimp. Sometimes they'd be looking for uh, for mullet. Mm -hmm. uh, actually, the, the shrimp fishing was quite interesting. Sometimes we. We had a number of days where the tarpon were in the river. We could see them. They wouldn't touch a fly for some reason. Uh, it started raining, and for some reason, that rain washed down a lot of shrimp from further upstream. And the tarpon went mad. Yeah. Uh, and other times, you would basically be uh, sort of dead drifting. You would fish a, quite a small shrimp fly. You would cast it across the river, or across sort of the, the stream in the big river, and you would stop kicking, so you would drift down the river at the same rate as you fly and you would sort of almost like a figure nine take it in extremely slow and you could feel tiny tiny little nibbles and then suddenly you got a big top on that golf you're know. like the ultimate nympher you, yeah <laughs> it was almost like nymphing yeah so there, there's a lot of different ways of of, of, of targeting the, the fish there any other fisheries that you think would work well with that um, with not not the nymphing or dead drifting but with the float tubing i think so um I, I, because I it's think a pretty I'm, environmentally friendly it is, it way is, of fishing absolutely. when you think yeah. about it. You're not using fuel. I mean, it's a good workout. You're in touch with the fish. It seems absolutely. fair. Yeah. Yeah. If there's no sharks around, it, I mean, it seems like a great 
way to it, fish. I've, I've, I've never done, I mean, I'd, I'd done float trip fishing back home in Denmark before that, uh, but I would, in Denmark, I'd probably just as well fish on foot, but there are just so many advantages to it here and, and, and you're sort of, you're in the water, you're closer to everything. Uh, mm. and, and, uh, and, and again, first time, you, first time you hook a big tarpon and it jumps way higher than you're sitting in the water, it makes you feel pretty small. It just <laughs> sounds like a liability. It sounds <laughs> so scary. So you couldn't do it in a pontoon boat then because you would need to row. Yeah. Although uh, in a water master, you could put your legs, you could put your legs in the water and kick. Yeah. Uh, right? and, and it's probably the same thing with a kayak where you can probably get as close, but once you hook a fish, you can't really position it because you're, you're not able to move the kayak. And that's the good thing about the follow trip. You, you can still move around the fish after you hook it. What was the big disadvantage to it besides having to go to the bathroom? Or were you just wet waiting? Could you just pee where you were? Yeah, you're just wet waiting. Basically. Oh, that's I mean, great. Warm, warm water. But, Any uh, other disadvantages? Uh, or like, did you get in a situation where you like didn't know where to put your um, rod? Or If you've if you got a stomach infection, you should not go and fish in the middle of the large lagoon very far from land. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Did you guys have like Giardia or something? Um, nothing. No, not, not, not that bad. But okay. uh, yeah, I mean, you are out there so you it's it's hard to avoid getting a bit of stomach upset sometimes <laughs> but if you're sitting in the water you could just do your deed and you would have to sometimes yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I, I guess the other advantage is moving from place to place a, a float tube is not that fast if you need to move like a couple of kilometers so we would have our a local guide that we had hired would take us out and then we would drop in fish there for the day and when get picked up again are they still fishing uh, that way over there not that i know of no they're in I, skiffs I, now yeah yeah well or even probably in pancas is my guess right uh, right of yeah, course yeah interesting okay so you guys made that video why did daniel choose you well we got on pretty well and another thing that happened back though that was probably about late 2009 was that the first dslr camera that could do video had just come out wait when did this video come out because it feels like yesterday oh it's a long time ago now 2010 yeah. Jeez, nine time years flies. ago yeah yeah so it is a long time ago i'm really out of touch with the new <laughs> stuff because like to me that's like this it's still one of the new videos no it's not oh that is so yeah. embarrassing okay all right okay sorry so yes yeah, so, that's okay. so back okay. then yes so the first dslr like still camera came out that could do video it was the 5d mark ii that uh, canon made yeah. and it, it was it really enabled individual filmmakers on a budget to do cinematic stuff, basically, because you're working with a really large sensor, you could work with a number of, uh, of, of lenses, you could do uh, low light stuff, and it really pushed the whole thing. But not waterproof, that'd be hard to do out of a belly boat. Not waterproof at all, no. But Ooh. the thing was, Daniel and I, neither of us had done any film before, oh. whatsoever. We were still photographers. So this camera came out, we thought, hey, at least we know our way around DSLRs. So I said to Daniel, hey, if, if you're up for this, uh, we'll buy a couple of these cameras and we're going to make a movie. So that's what we did. And yeah, it's, it's been a long time, but we like to think that we did push things a little bit. I think we were probably the first ones to shoot a whole film with DSLRs. A lot of people told us you can't do that. You can do certain things and sort of incorporate that, but we decided to go for it. With the exception of just before we left, somebody had brought out this waterproof little camera called a, a GoPro Hero. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, it, it just, nobody knew about it. And, and just like, and it was pretty much a coincidence. We decided to buy a couple and take them along and it worked really well for the underwater footage. And nobody knew that GoPro was going to be huge after that. So we decided to go for it. And another thing that I think that we were probably the first to do is we, since we we didn't put a lot of narration in it. Basically, there's hardly any, and it's not very long. 
it's half an hour or 32 minutes or something like that. But we wanted to do like a sort of a visual journey. We wanted to put emphasis on the visual side of things, using our photography experience to do some something that pleasing that was exciting that looked really nice and we only wanted to put the very best stuff in there and we wanted to sort of relay on that experience another thing we did was that we ended up selling it probably as the first fishing movie on blu-ray so you could basically watch it at home in full hd which was brand new back back then i know blu-ray has probably <laughs> gone the same way as betamax has gone by now but yeah back then that was that was another new thing Okay, so how did you guys market it? We did that ourselves. Uh, that was a learning experience as well. We sold it online ourselves. Uh, so there, there was a lot of work involved in that. The burning uh, but, question uh, is, did you make any money? Uh, we did make a little bit of money. Not very much if you look at the, the effort and the time involved. Uh, not at all. It, it covered our costs, maybe a little more. But this was also, at least for Daniel, this was a, sort of a... This was a, a Kickstarter for Daniel to get into uh, to producing movies, and he's done several since then. Have uh, you done any more since then? I haven't done any more, no. Uh, I sort of took a semi, semi-conscious semi decision not to sort of move that way. I had just recently finished my PhD, uh, got home, and I was like, okay, I've spent nine years studying, and I've got to put this to use. And... My wife and I thought we were going to have a family, which didn't really pan out. But yeah, so for a number of reasons, I decided not to sort of follow uh, follow up with, with any more movies. Uh, okay, so yeah. you took a very deliberate step away from getting into the fishing industry? Yes. Had you aspired to be in the quote-unquote fishing industry? I had a little bit. I, I, I did run a photography company for a number of years, sort of on, on the side next to my studies and, and, and next to my job for a number of years also. But um, that's photography. That's photography. And with fishing in it. Had, yeah. you, had you thought, I mean, you said you'd worked in a shop, you'd obviously done a lot of fishing. Had you thought about, you know, doing the standard being a guide or trying to be a host or be a fly fishing photographer as such? It was... It, I, I seriously considered the photographer part of it because that that was more my passion and I, I loved making movie as well but the movie thing is very intensive it uh, basically we we spent close to a year with the whole post-production and getting on onto distributors and so on getting home and I, that was difficult to combine with a full-time job mm-hmm. whereas photography is a little easier to combine with things it's not quite as intensive when you're in in the process so that that was maybe also part of the equation, and I think these days I I think it's it's there are so many talented filmmakers out there, so many talented photographers out there. It's 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 not an easy way to make a living. It's highly competitive now. It is. It is. And and there's a lot of people who do it for fun, yeah. and that's really difficult <laughs> to, to compete. And for free. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And that's really difficult to compete with. That's right. So either you need to be extremely talented or very dedicated or you need to find a way of combining it with things or you need to I think the the thing of going out making a movie selling it trying to make money is sort of dead now you need to work with lodges or someone else who basically pays you to do stuff for them this episode of Anchored is brought to you by Care Of who is offering Anchored listeners 30% off their next order Care of is a subscription service that makes it easy to get customized vitamins, protein powders, and more delivered straight to your door. With spring in full swing, I'm even more inspired to match the seasons and get my health back on track. I'm busier than ever these days, and the last thing I want to do with my spare time is go to the store to stare at a wall of vitamins that I really know nothing about. Care of takes a lot of the mystery out of how to get started. Their website gets you to start by taking a quiz that asks you about your diet, health goals, and lifestyle choices so that it can help you customize the best vitamins and protein powders for your needs. 
I actually really enjoyed filling out the five-minute quiz and felt myself becoming more inspired by the minute. A stark contrast to the exhaustion I feel when trying to sift through information online or at the pharmacy. The questions help you figure out your personal, scientifically-backed recommendations and is now new and improved to learn if you are getting enough protein, fiber, and good fats. From here, it helps determine if you can benefit from Care-of's new natural protein powders, which have clean labels and are made with organic ingredients like cocoa and Himalayan pink sea salt. Care-of makes sure you're getting vitamins and protein from the best sources that are backed by honest guidance and transparency. Your personalized Care-of subscription box gets sent right to your door every month and is great for a busy on-the-go lifestyle. They even say your name on them. Again, Care-of is offering 30% off your first order if you get started today. Simply go to www.takecareof.com and enter Anchored30 at checkout. That's something I was not going to talk to you about, but I'm really interested in it. And I I don't know how I feel about it being on the show, but I I can't let the opportunity pass me by. You now work in... I work, yeah. um, I work for a company that produces enzymes. Uh, So it's a biotechnology thing. So basically we provide sustainable solutions for a number of different industries. And one of the industries I work in is biofuels, which is also what I did my PhD in about a decade ago now. Right. Um, When you took your step back. Yeah. Had you already had your degree when you started to go for your PhD or did you literally just one day wake up? You said you're 42, right? Yes. So when you were 32, did you just wake up one day and decide, damn it, I'm going to be a doctor? I did my bachelor in forestry, then went on to do biology, plant biology for my master's. And then my forestry professor got hold of me and tried to talk me into doing a PhD and it sounded pretty interesting. So that's what I did. And then I finished my PhD and then basically I did get a job, but at the same time we started the Tapan project. Oh. So I was on a, a sort of a time restricted employment, got back and then I was offered full-time employment for this very interesting company that I'm still with and decided to, to stay with that. You're talking to someone who doesn't know anything about this industry, apart from that, you know, I've, I've fought Shell when they wanted to come in and, and do a bunch of fracking in Northern mm, British yeah. Columbia, but I really don't know anything about biofuel and I don't know if this is the right platform for it, but like I said, I can't have you here in my home drinking a beer <laughs> and not pick your brain just a little bit. No, nope, I'm more than happy to. About yeah, someone... Especially you're an expert in your field. You're obviously highly sought out. They've gone out of their way to have you here in Sydney. Talk to me through it as if I had never even heard of biofuel, which... I mean, I've heard of it, but I don't know what it is. Just start me, start from top to bottom. So biofuels collectively is basically fuels, mostly transportation fuels, that are made from a biological resource. So as an alternative to fossil fuels. And... It is a topic that has a fair bit of controversy mm-hmm. about it. There's a lot of misinformation out there. Uh, there's a number of countries that have done really well in biofuels. U.S. is one of them. They produce a lot of bioethanol, which is blended into petrol used today. Brazil is also doing very well. They don't import any oil these days. They produce all their transportation fuel themselves, mostly from sugarcane. Sugarcane? Yeah. Oh, so when I used to hear about trucks that were run on corn, is that the same? Is that biofuel? Yes. Uh, so oil is a slightly separate thing. You can have biodiesel, but that they're made from a different resource. Uh, oh, so, that's what I was talking yeah. about. So probably, at least if you look at it by volume, then bioethanol is the most common biofuel in the world today. Okay, and, and it's so made out of? It's made out of either starchy crops, so corn mostly in the US, it could be wheat in other places, um, or it could made, be made from sugarcane, for example. So the sugarcane is more straightforward because you've got the sugar in there, you ferment it just like you make a beer and you make it slightly more 
turbocharged process and you make it higher, higher ethanol tighter, but basically it's the same. It's a brewing process. For the starch-based fuel, which is one of the industries that I'm involved in, uh, you need to, you probably know, so when you eat starch, basically if you eat bread, it's going to be converted into glucose in your body. And it's that glucose that we want to ferment into ethanol. But to speed up that process, you need to convert the the starch into glucose very efficiently. And that's where the enzymes come into the picture. So enzymes are proteins that work as catalysts. And so the company I work for produces uh, these, uh, these various different enzymes that you need from microorganisms. So they're proteins that, that speed up this reaction like thousandfold. So you grow something that has starch in it and you convert it into, into ethanol, which could be used as a transportation fuel. Uh, so of course you decrease the CO2 footprint of the fuel. Uh, also, you're less reliant on importing oil in whatever country you, you produce this in. So it is a much more sustainable fuel compared to fossil fuels. Now, I'm very ignorant to this, so I can't argue you on anything. Sometimes I drive people crazy because they'll be an expert and I'm just learning about it. So I'll be sitting there going, oh, wow, how cool. And they're like, no, ask yeah. him this. But <laughs> I don't know what to ask you yeah. uh, apart from really basic things like this. When I go to fill up my truck then, how will I know which fuel is a bio that, re that really depends on which country you're in. Uh, so here in New South Wales and Australia, if you see something called E10, that means it's un regular unleaded petrol with up to 10% ethanol blended in. With a few exceptions, that's the most you can find here in, uh, in Australia. So it's more expensive. Um, it Usually it's a little cheaper than the 95. So the only drawback of using it is that your mileage is going to be a tiny bit less compared to petrol. So it should also be a little cheaper. But this is where a lot of politics also get into the equation. And there is a lot of misinformation out there. And, and, and so... Well, that's what I was hoping you'd yeah. tell me about. So for people who do actually know what you're talking about yeah. right now... Uh, okay, so there are probably people out there saying, no, no, it's a, it's a false economy and it requires more energy to produce this ethanol that's actually in the ethanol, which is very much not true. But it's, it's things like that you, you come across. Then there's the whole food for fuel uh, discussion where people believe, hey, you're using food That's to produce what I was fuel, ask you, yeah. and it's going to drive up food prices, and it's not good, and we're going to have so many hungry Africans, and that's what I hear yeah. all the time. Yeah, and and at least from my viewpoint, that discussion has been debunked many times, but it keeps coming up, and I think the discussion you should take instead is it's 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 really not a food versus fuel because. Most of the agricultural land in the Western world is not used for food production. Do you know what it's used for? It's used, about 70% is used for feed production. For livestock. Yes, exactly. Uh. So you're not taking away the food, you're taking away some of the feed. And then part of the process of converting this into fuel, you get a protein meal out of it, which again is used for, the, uh, for, uh, for livestock, basically. So you take out all the sugars, all the starch, and the leftover is still used for feed. So then where's the argument coming? Exactly. But there are a, a lot of, um, there's a lot of large companies that are involved with oil today, which uh. are probably not super keen on this. Uh, it, it's, again, it's controversial. A lot of these oil companies will say, no, no, we're heavily invested in biofuels. This is the future. But... I think it's probably still part of the equation somehow. So how would this work? Like if I wanted to, could I make my own? That would be difficult. I think the only biofuel you could make your own is if you wanted to make biodiesel out of used cooking oil. 
Uh, right. Yeah, you can actually, at least there used to be like a, you could buy like a setup you could build in your garage with a, a few containers and, yes. and you can convert that into a respectable diesel fuel. I'd mentioned my friend Kate Taylor before on this podcast and she, I remember years ago, her and her boyfriend, now husband, were going to do that. They had told me about this method, they had this old truck and they were going to, they bought this kit thing and they were going to do this conversion and I was just dumbfounded. And I thought it was going to be the next big thing. And then it kind of faded away. But it sounds like it is. it did end up becoming the next big thing. Um, the, the, the thing is, probably 10, 15 years ago, a lot of used cooking oil was just basically thrown out. But there are companies today that actually collect the used cooking oil and converting into biodiesel. Okay. Um, and also with a setup in your garage, you may run into trouble if you want to use this biodiesel in winter. Uh, because it, it's got a lower plucking point, as it's called, where it gets really viscous when it gets cold, which could be difficult in some in, in certain regions. Uh, right, right. Like in northern British Columbia? For example, yeah. Interesting. Okay, so do you have any... I mean, we can't dive too much into it, A, because I don't know what I'm talking about, and B, because you're still employed, but do you run into any ethical issues with your job? Um, not as such, no. I, I, no, I don't think so. Uh, I, I, I truly believe that we're... Not just in this industry, but in many other industries that use enzymes make a, a, a big difference in the world. Um, a lot of people don't know about enzymes. I probably wouldn't if I weren't in this field either. But enzymes are used in a lot of different things. Uh, they're used in the beer that we're drinking. They're used in juice production. It's used in your detergent. Uh, it's used in feed for, uh, for animals. It's used in textile production. It's used in many, many, many different industries where it replaces chemicals and basically saving a lot of energy and a lot of CO2 by doing things in a more sustainable way. Yeah. Uh, so like in Australia, sugarcane is actually a really big industry. Yes. Especially yeah. when you go further north. Yeah. So how much space would you need? How much property would you need to be able to have a commercial enterprise? So to, to build a bioethanol plant, you need, uh, for the sort of economy of scale, it needs to be very large. Um, and there are plants in Australia that produce ethanol out of both starch, so out of wheat. Uh, um, what about potatoes? Potatoes you could also do. I mean, it's, it's full of starch, but it also contains a lot of water. So if you want to transport it, it's going to be expensive. It also, it doesn't store well. You want a plant that can run 365 days a year. If you were to make it on potato you would basically need to run three four five months a year and then your plant would be standing still waiting for the next harvest uh, gotcha. so yes it would be doable but the economics probably wouldn't be very good what are you working with then here in australia so mostly the starch based because you don't really need a lot of enzymes if you use the sugarcane base because you already have the sugar that you can ferment with a regular yeast whereas if you're using your starch as in wheat, for example, you need the enzymes to convert it into sugar before you can uh, before you can ferment it. Okay, so you're primarily working with wheat over here. Yes, and yeah. it's already wheat that's in this country. Yes. What about in America? What are they primarily? In America, using? it's mostly corn. And I know it, it, this. I, I could go on for a long time here. So the next step would be instead of using the sugar or the starch, you could actually also use the cellulose. Right. Uh, which is also known as second generation bioethanol. This is an industry that we hope is going to grow a lot bigger because then you could actually use a waste. You could use your, uh, your corn stover, you could use your uh, wheat straw, you could use sawdust for, for converting that into fuel. Unfortunately, it's a lot more difficult uh, because nature really designed cellulose to be like a, a structural element. It was designed to withstand any kind of attack. And uh, yeah, so the cellulose is also built up 
by glucose, just like starch, but it's a lot harder to break down. So you need a lot more processing, a lot more enzymes, uh, but it is doable. And there are full-scale plants running today on cellulosic feedstocks. Um, I'm really interested in the environmental impact. Yeah. And, and I, there are probably also listeners saying, yeah, yeah but we're getting electrical cars now, so we don't need biofuels. Uh, and I don't see biofuels as being the solution to everything. Not at all. I believe it's it's part of the solution. I, I love the idea of, of electric cars, and I've, it's great to see the momentum that electric cars are getting these days around the world. But in 20 or 30 years from now, you're still going to see a lot of cars with a combustion engine. They might be hybrids. Heavy transportation trucks, it doesn't work with batteries. Same for planes. There's a lot of transportation fuel used in, in planes and trucks. And, and again, also, yes, you need to build the batteries, but also you need the electricity from somewhere to charge these. And if you have a coal plant right next to where you charge your batteries, it's not really a green transportation. Yeah, well, actually, that's, that is something I do want to ask you about. Footprint. Yeah. You know, I'm really conscious of the, my footprint and I do the recycling and the composting and, yeah. you know, not buying packaging, all those little things. But then I feel like a real dumbass when I get on an airplane and I live, you know, I'm flying back and forth constantly between Australia and British Columbia. Am I just this enormous hypocrite? I mean, of course I am to some degree, but how much of a footprint am I having with those flights? That's that's a good question. And, and, and you're should probably ask someone who actually works in sustainability because I, I don't have the numbers. Uh, but I do believe that for most of us, flying is certainly a very large portion of our footprint. And I think beef is probably also a very large portion of our footprint. Yeah, now let's um, take it down that road because yeah. you're getting into bow hunting. I am, I am. Which is very exciting, yes, especially um, in this country, like yeah. I was saying, with all the feral animals. Yeah. But what do you know about the sustainability uh, with the beef industry? I probably don't know a whole lot more than, than whatever people who are interested in it know about it. But it is that to produce beef, you need uh, a lot of water, uh, a lot of energy. And again, I don't have the figures, but if you look at how many liters of water and how many, how many kilograms of CO2 that you need to, for producing one kilogram of beef, then it, it, it's a lot. Absolutely. Uh, again, that's the reason that we use, and 70% might not be the right figure, but we, that we use a very large portion of our of our agricultural land for, for, for basically producing feed. I am going to be sitting down with a professor to discuss uh, global warming mm. or climate change, dun, yeah. dun, dun, which is always a really hot topic in this household. But is that something that is a hot topic in your industry? Uh, I would say that yes. I mean, uh, that, that is, apart from the sh fuel security, that is the main reason that you would want to use biofuels or produce biofuels basically okay, uh, so, so they, they, they do go hand in hand and 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 yeah the, the whole sustainability part of it is, is definitely an important aspect can you think of anything that i should be asking you about that mm. uh, just while i've got you here people who are listening who would be screaming at me right now to ask you something and another thing that i get quite often here in australia is if i ask them if they buy e10 for example they will tell me that of course they don't buy it because they don't want to wreck their car and again, I think that's another example that there's a lot of misinformation out there. People are told from their car dealers and from their mechanics who, and I, again, I don't know where they get their information from. Uh, cars have been running on the equivalent of E10 in the US for 20 years, like 
all their cars and, and their fleet has not broken down and it's not going to break down here either. By buying something like E10, you're supporting local farmers, local production. The particular emission is a lot better when you have ethanol in your fuel. Uh, again, you have a, a better footprint. Uh, so there's a lot of reasons to, to, to buy it. But yeah, it's, it's, um, sometimes these uh, people get very um, even agitated about it. I tell them, I, this is what I work with. I, th- th- what you're telling me is not true. And they get really upset sometimes. It's, it's, it's funny how it works. It's an interesting career. Yeah. Does it get really hot in there, like as far as the politics and the... It, it, it does a bit, and, and this is something that's actually new to me. So I'm a, I'm a scientist. I used to work in a lab. I used to help our customers optimize their production. Now I'm getting sort of more into the sales side, and I always also sit on the um, National Liquid Biofuels Committee here in Australia, which is sort of exposed to me to lobbying and policies and mandate and stuff, which is completely new to me. Yeah, that's surprising and, that they take a scientist out and put it put you in that part of the industry. Yeah, well, I'm uh, right now I'm I'm more I'm, I work as a sales manager now and I do know about the industry because I've been in it for 10-15 years now. So and they want industry to be represented in committees like this. So that's a really interesting learning experience to sort of see how things work and it also makes you a little uh, it makes you worry a little bit sometimes because I see things in the media about biofuels and I I can say, hey, this is completely wrong. And you start thinking, what about all the other stuff I read that I don't really know anything about? And and this is a completely separate discussion with GMO crops as well. well GM, GMO crops yay. is a huge thing in the US, but and, it's and basically in Canada. This whole the, yeah. what is it, Monsanto? Exactly. But it's basically banned in the rest of the world. And you see a lot of produce saying non-GMO or non-GMO based or non-GM. And it's, it's like it's just been branded as... The norm. The norm. It, it, well, at least outside US and Canada, it's being seen as, as a bad thing. Isn't it? It could be, but not necessarily. Uh, again, and that's only because it's something that I know a little bit about. To me, you should uh, distinguish whether this GMO crop is... Does it have any genes from a different organism in it? Or have you simply just sped up the whole development of getting the cultivar that can withstand drought or temperature, stuff like that? I I think you can do a lot of stuff with molecular biology these days that we should take advantage of. But but we have to be a little careful. So if you wanted to to breed wheat in the past, basically you'd take some some wheat kernels, you would expose them to radioactivity and they'd all go a little funky. And then some of them would show traits that you're interested in. And then you would start breeding that to get a wheat that could, again, could be drought resistant or could uh, grow in soil that has an increased saline content or something like that. So you would do that for maybe 25 years to look for this particular trait that you're interested in. Now, what you can do is that if you find a wheat that has that trait, but it doesn't perform very well in other regards, you can pick out that gene and put it into a different wheat. So you can speed up that process. Instead of spending 30 years, you can do it maybe in a year or two. And to me, that makes a lot of sense because we could have crops that could grow in basically in places that you can't grow things today. But you can also take genes from a whole other organism. And that's where you have to be a little more careful, I think. And then there's Monsanto that has put in a gene that makes the crop resistant to their pesticides. And so the pesticides will kill anything but that for your crop. You've watched the documentaries on this, right? Some of them, yes. Okay. Yeah. And that's not necessarily a good thing either. So I'm not saying that GMO is as good as such, but I think we have to maybe take a slightly deeper look into it. Is the wheat that you guys are using genetically modified? 
not here in New South Wales, no. I believe there are some weeds being grown in Western Australia that are GM. But what you guys are using for biofuels, not. Yeah, so, so the company I work for, we don't produce biofuels. That's what our customers do. So we produce the enzymes that are that are used in the process. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah. I mean, you're a proper scientist, yes. <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Did you ever think about taking that, taking your education or taking your interest in science and applying it towards fisheries? Um, not really. I think I probably should have gone a, distant, a, di- a different route to be able to do that. It wasn't really on my radar back then. I chose forestry because I didn't really know what else to choose and it sounded really interesting. I like the aspect that you have a lot of, you have a combination of biology and geography and geology and uh, you even have history, uh, economics involved. And then I sort of got into plant biology. Do you still do any fishing? I do, I do. Not as much as I used to, but also now I've been spending a bit of time learning how to shoot a bow. But uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> I do. I, I don't a li- downward smile from I, there. I know. I, yeah, um, I got it. Well, at least I got a feeling about it. But uh, yeah, very excited about that. But no, yes, I, I still go. I still go fishing. Okay. Is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me? Um, any advice for an upcoming bow hunter in Australia? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> lots. Just get ready to have your life be completely destroyed. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and it's like a constant battle of ethics. Yeah. Uh, but this is what my advice would be to you. Know what your ethics are for yourself mm. before you go out. That is something I figured out slowly, uh, too slowly, because for so long I'd be like, I'm not shooting a doe. And then at the end of the season, I'm like, far out. Why didn't I shoot Mm. that doe, you know? And then just be prepared to have the most, like uh, the biggest highs and lows of your life. You're going to be questioning yourself sometimes. Should I have taken that shot? Oh, I can't even begin to tell you what the turmoil you're about to go through. You're going to have days where you just like, you just you don't understand what you're doing wrong and then you're going to feel defeated. You're going to feel like a failure. You're going to feel like a loser. (laughs) You're just going to have all these highs and lows. So be ready for it. Thank you. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you for listening. Miss Mondays with Into the Blue, brought to you by Academy Sports and Outdoors, every Monday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. Brave anglers search for the one they call king, but who will take his throne? Tune in to Waypoint TV's Battle for Silver, Saturday, May 18th from 12 to 6 p.m. Eastern, presented by Abyss Battery, Waypoint TV.